Good afternoon. Um, my name is Dr. Ifobana Wigwe, and I'm the president for the African Public Health Network. Um, I'm here with my fellow vice president, um, Leila Zormardian, and we will be presenting our um, Public Health Week event. Um, I just wanted to throw in before I turn it over to Leila to give a bit more about today's session. Um, that next week begins Faces of Africa, um, and our theme will be um, public health and humanitarian crisis. So please be on the lookout um, for that information as that will be going live um, in the next day or so. Leila. Thank you everyone for coming. We are lucky today to have two speakers uh, from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health who are here to talk to us about vaccine efforts across the world and in Africa. Um, and they both come uh, from or represent today um, JPIGO, the uh, affiliate with the Johns Hopkins School, um, and also work from IVAC, the Inter International Vaccine Access uh, Center. Um, Dr. Jennings uh, is a senior technical advisor uh, for immunizations with JPIGO. And Sarah Wanyuike is a senior, senior technical advisor for the same for immunizations at JPIGO as well. I will let them further introduce themselves and thank you so much, both of you, for being here. Great, thank you. Um, I, I wonder if Sarah would like to just say a, a brief couple words about herself and her background that she's bringing to this talk um, before, before I go. Sure, yeah, thank you, Mary Carol. So my name is Sarah Wanyoike. Originally, I'm from Kenya, but I've been in the U.S. for about 13 years. Um, I've been a chronic scholar, so I started my education with a nursing degree and then went to clinical nutrition, and then I did um, uh, public health at the Emory Rollins School of Public Health. So I had an opportunity to work with Walt Orenstein at the Emory Vaccine Center, and that's how I got into immunizations work. So I continued with Emory for a few years, and then that's where I came across my next boss who was at the Gates Foundation. So I worked in polio for the Gates Foundation for two years. Then I found myself in WHO coordinating a rapid response team for polio uh, out of Congo Brazzaville. So we were coordinating response activities for COVID and polio in 2019, 2020 and 2021 um, out of Congo Brazzaville for the 47 member states. Um, yeah, and then I just joined JPIGO as a senior technical advisor for immunizations in December of 2021. So here I am. And right now I'm in Malawi. So if my network is off, the Malawi weather. Thank you. Over to you, Mary Carol. Thanks, Sarah. Um, I, I uh, uh, the kind of chronic scholar term is a great term, Sarah, that resonates. <laughs> Um, so I, um, I am currently wearing a couple of different hats. I consult for JPIGO and um, an associate faculty for IVAP um, and in the international health department, in addition to some other public health work that I do. Um, but over, I'm, I'm a physician by training my clinical as an obstetrics and gynecology and I maintain my board certification in general preventive medicine and public health. I did my training at Johns Hopkins um, where I got my MPH and then had joined the faculty um, for a number of years um, in a kind of an implementation science position with, with IVAC. Um, 
prolifer before doing that, I had done, I did a, um, a health systems postdoctoral fellowship with JPIGO, um, not on immunizations, but on innovations and primary healthcare service delivery, um, mostly with the JPIGO Tanzania office, but also through their USAID technical expertise um, grant. Um, and kind of over, over my career, I focused on rural medicine, primary healthcare, health systems, and, um, and kind of how to, how to innovate and really drive um, research into policy uh, across populations. Um, while at IVAC, I um, ran a project we'll spend a little bit of time talking about, but I was the director of a, of a project called the Raven Project, which is an example of, um, of a, a couple of different types of projects. And um, I also developed a, a strong relationship between the center and new colleagues at Jopaiko as Jopaiko was leaning more and more into the immunization space. And so the project that Sarah and I work on um, is called the Sheep Project. And we'll spend more time about, about that or on that later in, in these, these, uh, our slide deck. Um, but that's, that's um, I, had, I had originally written the concept note and submitted the grant to Gates for that and then left my full-time role with Hopkins um, and now have the pleasure of working with Sarah on that project in a different role. Um, so I, I think that's probably plenty of background. Um, we've, uh, we, we hope that you enjoy our comments that we've prepared. Leila, shall I go ahead to our, our slides? Uh, where some of them, some of our slides that we're sharing, like two or three are embargoed for, for sharing. I know you're recording this, they're labeled as embargoed, um, but uh, we're not sharing the slides because of that. Um, I, I don't know if you guys are, are you distributing this just internally or recording it for which purposes? Just because of those two slides. I don't so know if what, we can, go ahead. Yeah, so what I can do is, um, when it's shared, the video is not shared, it's only audio. Um, yeah, so we don't share the video actually. It's, it's the audio that we'll use and it's shared. It's put on APHN's um, podcast okay, blog, so yeah. Okay, great. You could probably just, if you needed to share the video, zero out those two slides. Um, so I'll ask everybody not to you know, take a screenshot of those two, but again, they are marked just for publication um, uh, ethics. Uh, so let me, you know, figure out slide sharing. Um, I'm running the slide, the slides just for um, Sarah's bandwidth, which um, You guys would let me know, do you see just the slide or do you see the notes version? Just the slide. Just the slide. Okay, great. Um, so I'm gonna go first and you guys, I'm, I've got about 12 minutes of comments prepared and then we'll hand over to, to Sarah. Um, there'll be a break right there where you guys can you know, ask questions um, or put comments in the chat throughout. And then we'll have some time hopefully at the end as well. Um, and we, we are wrapping at the, at the hour. Um, so we, we were asked to talk about kind of challenges to vaccine access and to focus on Africa because of, of the, the focus of, of your group. 
Um, and we've attempted to pull together some interesting lessons from the field and um, hope you find it an engaging conversation. Um, just briefly, we're gonna hit kind of a history of equity gaps, how to move the needle, some examples of new vaccine introduction and kind of technical support um, that, that can help respond to global challenges in that space. Um, we're gonna focus a bit on HPV vaccine, um, on the use case for building capacity and consensus across a, a, a vaccination community of practice. We've got a quick little case in point study of, of disease burden and how it, we've used different metrics to guide um, country prioritization. Um, and then we'll um, hit kind of like selected um, country introduction status. Um, put a little bit of COVID context around that and um, also kind of wrap up with some lessons learned from polio um, towards these themes. Um, so to start with some takeaways from coalition work, um, uh, the, the, the kind of concept I wanted to introduce is, um, you know, why is it important to accelerate access to vaccines? And um, I'm going to use a series of images and points developed by the leadership of the International Vaccine Access Center over the years. Many of these I attribute to Dr. Kate O'Brien, who served for some years as the executive director of IVAC, a pediatrician and professor on faculty at Hopkins, before being tapped to move to Geneva, um, where she is at WHO headquarters running IVB, the Immunization Vaccines and Biologicals, um, or part of a WHO, where um, all of WHO's immunization work is, is centered and housed. Um, and then I'll also um, attribute a lot of this to Professor Matus Santosham, who I'm privileged to call a, a mentor and friend and um, continues to be involved in the Sheik project, as well as being involved in most of these projects we're talking about today. Um, so over the past decade, the new vaccines available for countries to introduce nationally have followed a substantial upward curve. Um, the, um, we see differences in timeline to uptake by country income. And so this is the, the disparities equity component of what I wanna pull out. Um, we see clearly that income is a determinant of uh, the diffusion of innovation. Uh, and follow these, you see sometimes that the gap can close, but that there are many more years um, from first country introduction in the group of countries um, who are low-income countries than there are in high-income countries. So this kind of begs the question, what drives that gap? Um, and I just wanted to point out governments and foundations, like kind of the context of what we're talking about today, have made investments over many decades in, in what I might term access accelerators. Uh, and these, these usually kind of address equity writ large at a global level by trying to close that gap in routine vaccine access between countries. Uh, and I, I, I think that this kind of proves the concept that, um, that focused multidisciplinary coalition efforts can move the needle, can move a kind of big picture, big, big population needle. Um, and the takeaway here is that compared to B vaccine, um, we can start kind of at having of that time to introduction where we saw um, the HIB initiative, which was one of the earlier um, kind of accelerator projects and another additional having with um, kind of in the context of what was called the pneumo effort. 
since there are some complex figures, but I'll, I'll move on to the next. Uh, so these accelerator initiatives share a common framework um, from my observations and kind of building upon um, the literature in this space, kind of all the lessons learned that come out of these projects. Um, and I think that framework really captures kind of the elements that you first have to understand at a country level um, and that you might be able to use to serve as, as levers to facilitate a decision, um, which generally falls out into, you know, introduce a new vaccine now or not at this time, sometime later. And those are generally, you know, you might, someone else might organize these a little bit differently, but like core immunization program elements and then supportive elements around that, such as kind of what is the cost of introduction? What are the actual, is the vaccine, how efficacious, how effective is it? Um, what's the feasibility of the country's health system and immunization system? And what's the disease burden? Um, in addition to kind of external political and policy factors. So the Raven project is a, a recent example um, where um, of these accelerator projects. And I had served as the director, as I mentioned, of this, this um, four-year multi-country project while I was on full-time faculty at IVAC. It was a um, partnership between CDC and JSI, John Snow, and then IVAC, and IVAC was the core of the secretariat. Um, and so we worked together to select eight focus countries based on disease burden and um, countries that were considered you know, late to, to innovate or to introduce a rotavirus vaccine, um, despite clear WHO guidance and GAVI financial support to do so. Um, many African countries had already introduced rotavirus vaccine when Raven started, although we did have teams supporting Benin and embedded in the EPI in DRC. Um, and then, uh, so this is some of the embargoed content just because it's part of a manuscript we're working on. Um, the Raven project worked across a spectrum of decision-making um, from, from awareness building and champion development to decision, GAVI application for support, all the way through, uh, through post-introduction to optimize a new program. Um, and then we've also charted the, the leverage points and how we facilitate uh, a coordinated response to a key global challenge. When um, in the Raven case, one of the main manufacturers decided to exit the market. And so this is just a, um, we, we came back to this, this image throughout the project and this is kind of the final result um, shows the timelines and kind of the nature of technical assistance inputs and how um, we really worked on the ground and at the global level to support these countries in kind of getting to a, you know, a yes or a not this time. Uh, and interestingly, both of our Afro-focused countries changed their plan product um, during the course of this project. And we helped them navigate this global challenge with really individualized targeted technical assistance some of those examples included developing new immunization cards, facilitating a policy or program kind of guidance on questions that the countries had from WHO and Gabby, um, and ensuring continued attention to the planning. And what happened was there was a switch from like a three-dose schedule to a two-dose scheduled product, um, or the other way around in the countries like that <laughs> causes a, a really big um, implementation challenge um, uh, to, to switch that to change all your communications programs, to change all your materials, um, your, your registries and your tracking, um, tracking approach. 
So Neil, happy to answer more about this. This is just kind of a, a quick little sampling of, um, of some of this work. Now, um, so Sarah and I work together on what we call the SHEEP project. Um, it, uh, it's an acronym that maybe we'll just leave the acronym aside, but it's a coalition project uh, built on, on the shoulders of, of these other access accelerators. It's, um, it's focused not yet on technical assistance, like the Raven project was, um, and, and not, it, not quite on like targeted decision support in country, although it's moving that way. Um, but its real mission is um, to, to build consensus across the global community of practice around HPV um, vaccination and cervical cancer. Um, and it's, it's to drive up access to HPV vaccination toward HPV cervical cancer elimination goals that WHO, um, the World Health Assembly have, have set. And of course, um, you know, screening and vaccination are key to get to that goal. Um, and so here's the short little case in point study um, that, I, that I, I teased at the beginning of this. Um, so we, we just wanted to share kind of a, like a <laughs> epidemiology and practice, I guess. Um, so we wanna share how um, kind of supporting decision-making at the country level or global level, all in the service again of these elimination targets required some practical applications of a core epidemiology concept. Um, namely kind of how to measure disease burden to inform country prioritization for this project. So again, I'm gonna just kind of scrape the top of some of these and hopefully um, the, the big picture is interesting to you. So the senior author of this paper is one of our council members. So she has a council and then a group that's responsible for planning um, uh, symposia on, on HPV vaccine topics. So this one council member, um, Jacopo Balsano, is the senior author here. He's based at IARC, or the International Agency for Research in Cancers, which is the WHO's cancer epidemiology and disease burden engine many of you may um, be familiar with or have even worked with. The authors undertook multiple estimates and modeling steps. Um, so don't, don't try to read the words here. It's just kind of demonstrating how complex their approach was. Um, and, they, they culminated, this culminated in an estimate of, of the number of cervical cancers preventable globally and each country, um, at each, each country level around the world through vaccination. So that's the paper's primary outcome. And <laughs> so the primary contribution, I think, of this paper was to show a decision maker which countries might be the most urgent for a vaccine introduction. Um, for, and for, for decision support um, to consider introduction visualized here on the map. And then for the purposes of this talk, I wanted to note the increasing trend in cervical cancer disease burden in the red countries, um, which are projected across almost all of Africa. Um, and that's kind of what the future state might look like in the absence of vaccination, the disease burden projected to increase. The paper also generated a number of plots like this one, categorizing and rank ordering countries across the world in terms of the number of preventable cervical cancer cases where um, were HPV vaccine to be introduced to the, the cohort of girls who are age eligible between 2020 and 2030. And this is just making their results relevant to policy um, because we're currently in this, this decade of, of vaccines and all the kind of global players set their targets on 2030 uh, for this decade. So you will see here again, as you look at the countries, zoom in on your screen, um, in, in the very highest disease burden category, 
um, you see disproportionate burden across a number of African countries, Nigeria, Tanzania, Uganda, DRC, Ethiopia, and Kenya are all represented here um, in this very high burden category. And just quick sidestep, where do we typically, typically derive cervical cancer disease burden data? Um, you know, global cancer observatory data, it's worth noting, come from kind of the best, most recently available national data um, from registries and local studies. So that is kind of what's informing the one of the baseline inputs to that study. Um, so when that, that study, as we were trying to look at where to prioritize, um, it raised a lot of questions among our other council members. Um, and so a colleague of Sarah's and mine, um, Sarah's is Morgan. Um, Morgan and I went back to kind of what we thought it might be a simple source, just basic incidence data. Um, so we went again, back and back still to IARC's estimates to WHO Global Cancer Observatory and pulled out just the, the kind of the simpler incidence data. And here's the example from Zambia, one of Cheek's current focus countries, which Sarah will get to in a minute, um, showing us the age standardized cervical cancer incidence per 100,000 women. So that's the, the simple metric that we pulled out. Um, and it, it was for 2020, this is the most recent data. Um, and so in, in Zambia, we see that that rate is 65.5, which across, um, you can download this and pull the other, the other country fact sheets for yourself, but across the world is, is like in the very highest group of, of incidents that we see for cervical cancer. And yet we see it here, this is, it's in the second category from the other paper, right? It's in the, in the global comparison over the longer time horizon. It's squarely in the middle of, um, of just the hybrid in category, not the very highest category. So for my final slide here before handing off to Sarah, uh, I wanted to just invite comments in the chat. What would you pick? What conclusion would you draw from the point in time incidence data from IART with that, that country, with the incidence um, sheet? Um, right, like what would you, like what would that, what would that data lead you to, to select? Um, so I, I think it would probably lead you to prioritize that country because it's just a very high country level incidence. But what conclusion you might draw from the rank order categories produced by the Bonjour, um, Bonjour et al. analysis is that you might deprioritize this country. You might choose to work on only the very high disease burden um, category countries, of which Zambia is not one. Um, so anyhow, and, and one of my one of the first slides that that Sarah is going to share, you'll see a table with examples of some of the opposite cases as well. Um, a country with lower relative incidence falls into the very high disease burden category. Um, but it's just, it just I thought that was a really fat. We really struggled with this, and we were all like we're all trained public health experts with many years of experience, and um, this is just really insightful um, use of practical epidemiology. I wanted to share. So. With that, I'll pause for any comments or questions and hand over to my colleague, Sarah. And Sarah, you just tell me next slide and I'll switch for you. Awesome, great. Thank you, Mary Carol. I think um, I've actually learned a lot. I hope you can hear me as soon as my connection yes. is unstable. That's great. <laughs> and we can see you as well. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yeah, no, that I've learned a lot just going through your slides and I've gone through them before, but hearing you walk through them, I'm also learning. Um, but I was actually also going to pause another question here about the current context that we're working in COVID. And, and this is an on, so I've been moving around countries, uh, Liberia, Zambia, Nam in Malawi. 
one of the biggest questions now is also about COVID vaccines. So, you, you know, we have a lot of COVID vaccines in the cold stores in countries, um, but the uptake is still very low. So among the issue of um, slow introduction and then that slow uptake that we saw in the graphs that Mary Carroll was showing, there's a lot of other factors. I think maybe some factors come into play more than others. So there's vaccine availability, maybe like HPV. Uh, then there's this whole issue of the policies and the political will that Mary Carroll pointed out. But I think the most interesting one I've come across so far is as country governments are starting to kind of relax on these uh, social distancing and the mask requirements in some of these African countries, it also gives people a sense that we no longer need to get vaccinated. So we have vaccines sitting in the cold stores that are about to start expiring. Um, so I just wanted to give that observation and of course welcome some thoughts um, from everybody in the audience. So we can go into the next slide. So I think following on from what Mary Carol was talking about in terms of prioritization, uh, just to give you a sense, um, so far as of, I think this was as of March, 2022, we had 111 countries that have introduced HPV vaccines majority of which were introduced actually in 2019, at least for the African countries. And then we have about 25 that are still planning to introduce the vaccine and then 58 that have not introduced. So I think the issue here is um, what happened between 2019 and then the COVID disruption. And then you saw like the coverage for Zambia in 2020 from the slide that Mary Carroll shared, the coverage was about 65% in 2020. When they came into 2021, the coverage dropped for the nationwide HPV coverage, it dropped to, to 25% because of the obvious reasons with COVID and limitations in movement. And then of course there's hesitancy that's associated with, you know, the whole speculation around COVID vaccine being used to do trials in African countries, you know all that talk that's happening. All right, next slide. Okay, so uh, I think for the SHIP project that Mirakel was talking about, we did a combination of uh, factors. We did we looked at the global can, and thanks to Mary Carol for this, um, in looking at the disease burden for countries. And then we also looked at the drop in coverage between 2020 to, to, sorry, 2019 to 2020. So 2019 was most when most countries introduced in Africa. And then the drop in cover, if there was a drop in coverage or if the coverage kind of remained the same, or if there was an improvement in countries like Cote d'Ivoire, they did a lot of intense intensification activities. So their coverage actually went up, which was pretty awkward in the middle of COVID. And then the other thing we're trying to do this year is then to do some opportunistic approaches to engage countries in places where Japaigo has a strong country presence, like Malawi, where I am. And then we're also trying to do some ongoing work um, to support HPV introduction in countries like Pakistan, where we're trying to help them develop the proposals for Gavi and also trying to help them with thinking about what scenarios would play out? Should they do some integration? Uh, which vaccine to use? Because there's a few options for vaccines. Uh, so we're trying to work with the, the Ministry of Health to make those decisions, at least to, to give them the evidence that they need to make the decision. So what we've done this year is we've broken down the countries by blocks, or rather we've grouped countries by blocks. So we have India and Pakistan that I yet to introduce, but they're talking about, they're really close to introducing. Um, and you could see that the uh, India seems to have a higher incidence 
of uh, cervical cancer. Pakistan, it looks low, but um, as you can see there, the local experts feel like it's been underreported. So the disease burden seems to be higher than you can see over here. Nigeria is also still discussing about introducing and then Guinea is also thinking about the introduction. So we're trying to look into those countries and see how we can support um, with accelerating introduction into those countries. And then you have Cote d'Ivoire that I mentioned went up with introduction. And then Liberia also, after they introduced in 2019, they've actually kept a pretty good pace in 2020 and 2021, thankfully. Tanzania is also doing very well and Zimbabwe. So we're just keeping an eye on those to keep either the coverage where it is or try to boost it up a little bit. And then uh, Zambia has dropped significantly. As I said, it went from 65% in 2020 to 25% in 2021. And then Malawi as well. What's happening is during COVID, when people went back to school, seems like um, when people knew that there was going to be HPV vaccination activities, uh, the kids weren't showing up to school. And so we had to do out several outreaches to reach to those girls who weren't in school during the vaccination days, which also calls for a lot more money. Next slide. All right. So this is Liberia. I'm not going to too much detail, but I can just mention that they introduced um, HPV into, into their routine immunization in 2019, like many other African countries. And they did have a demonstration project in 2016, which was used to now make a decision to introduce HPV into routine immunization in 2019. And so they basically target girls nine years of age, and they basically do a mix of school vaccinations and then outreach. And for outreaches, they have specific dates that they actually target to go out to reach to the girls who are not in school. Now, in 2021, they conducted what you call a PERI, that's the periodic intensification activities, where they actually go out um, and do really targeted interventions to targeted districts to kind of boost their coverage for um, HPV vaccination. And this was part of their post-COVID recovery strategy, trying to recover um, the girls that they missed during COVID. And so uh, I think basically other countries, Liberia is trying to get to the 90% uh, coverage for girls by the year 2030 for all girls 15 years of age and under. So I think here is where you see the what if, if we have any, the whole idea about the dosages, about whether it's two dose or one dose, uh, I think that SAGE is considering to uh, make a recommendation of moving to a one dose but there's still a lot of discussion of whether one dose of HPV is indeed enough to prevent cervical cancer. Um, that would actually help to utilize the vaccine that's available because we are currently facing shortage of vaccines, um, which is not very poor countries that are trying to boost up their coverage. Next slide. Okay, Zambia. So Zambia actually has a really high uh, burden of disease, as we mentioned earlier. And then um, they basically did an introduction in 2019, like most countries, and they've been targeting girls 14, actually it's nine to 14 years of age. Um, but right now, because of the, the shortage of the vaccines, they're actually just targeting nine year, girls nine years of age, but they are looking to go back to the multi-age cohort as soon as they can get as much vaccine as they can. And also, of course, there's also an issue of, um, funding, the operational funding, because with COVID now, they're having to do a lot more outreaches than they've had to do in the past. The school-based vaccinations 
are seeming quite um, difficult to achieve the coverages that they want. And so, as usual with most countries, with HPV rollout, we have to involve the Ministry of Health. And the Ministry of Health, you have the immunizations team, but you also have the cervical cancer prevention units in most countries, so they have to work together. And then you also have to work with the ministries of education because the people that interface with these girls every day are the teachers. So the teachers have to be looped in because some of the countries like Liberia, when the girls wouldn't show up to school, we found out it was the teachers telling them not to go to school on that day um, because they didn't believe in the vaccine. So a lot of work needs to be done with ministries of education in educating the teachers, um, which now calls for a multi-sectoral collaboration with non-traditional immunization partners. That's what that means. And like many other countries, we're also looking at the 90% coverage. Next slide. All right, uh, so basically this year for Jopaigo and the SHIC, the SHIC uh, partners, we're trying to do some awareness creation uh, through the council by basically engaging country EPI managers. Those are the immunization managers that are um, given the directive by the Minister of Health to head all immunization ser services. And then we have the cervical cancer prevention teams and other stakeholders. We have PATH, we have WHO, we have UNICEF that looks at um, adolescent health. So they all have to be involved in these discussions when we're trying to do some awareness creation. And then after that uh, engagement, then we're going to talk about maybe launching a few webinar series where we can share new evidence, for example, on the one dose that I just talked about, and maybe thinking about uh, sustainable, sustainable approaches like integration, uh, which would allow for equitable coverage, and then maybe have periodic forums where uh, governments and partners can come together and then share some practical insights that maybe we're missing as we're um, thinking about continued scale up of the HPV vaccine. And then, of course, we'll focus on continued interactions with countries and then develop targeted advocacy materials. If it's an issue of buying some political will from the country, what is needed there? So engaging these people very closely to see what the needs are and then tailoring our approaches based on what we're hearing from the countries. Then next slide. So polio which we know by now should be gone, but it still kind of persists. Next slide. So, um, so we finished polio a while back and Africa got certified wild polio virus free on 2020 during the regional committee on August 25th. And then unfortunately we've continued to see what you call vaccine derived polio viruses in many African countries. And this is largely due to the vaccine that we were using, the monovalent polio vaccine, which was kind of unstable. So if it stays too long in the environment, it starts to kind of um, revert to virulence. And so it starts to paralyze, cause acute plastic paralysis in children. So that's what we were trying to manage for at least two or three years there. Um, the good news is their cases have actually reduced this year. Uh, I think we've only had about eight total cases in the Africa region. And this is largely, in my opinion, which is very contradictory to most people, because of the use of the new vaccine, which is not unstable, the novel oral polio vaccine uh, that was aggressively introduced in 2021. And this is largely because most ministers of health started to say, we don't want that vaccine because we can see that it's causing problems. Give us the latest and greatest, which was the novel. Um, so 
I think this year, um, most of the cases that we're seeing are coming from Nigeria and DRC. Um, and that's because that's where we used extensively the monovalent vaccine. The good thing with that vaccine, it actually did stop a lot of the polio cases. Unfortunately, when it lingers in the environment too long, we owe a lot of um, a lot to MOPD because that's the reason we got certified. But unfortunately, it did cause problems with extensive use. Um, and then, of course, this year we have the wild type polio virus that we've seen in Malawi. Uh, and there's currently some responses being conducted using bivalent oral polio vaccine. So as you can see, the burden of disease between, it's, it's largely in 2021, where we had about 740, 740 or something like that of vaccine-derived polio cases. These are children getting paralyzed uh, from type two. And then we had about 30 getting paralyzed from type one, which is mostly was in Madagascar. And then these are the ones who are mostly in Nigeria because you can see a lot of the green dots in Nigeria. But the good thing is, I think this year we've had very few cases, about maybe four cases from Nigeria. So the new vaccine that's being used is seeming to work and is seeming to be more stable. Next slide. Yeah, and then typically this is the indents of the vaccine derived versus wild polio. So you can see we got certified in 2020 as wild, wild polio virus. That's the original wild polio virus. But then you see the small little red on uh, November, 2021, which got reported this year. And that's what everybody's trying to respond to in Tanzania, Mozambique, uh, Zambia, and Malawi. They're trying to really make sure that all children are vaccinated so we don't see any more of that. The next one, yeah, I think just a little bit more about myself and Mary Carol, but you've heard it from us, so I'm not going to go into it. All right, uh, all right, back to you, Mary Carol, Lila. Thank you. It's a couple of questions. Thanks, everybody, for the questions in the chat. Um, maybe I'll just read them out. Um, Although, you know, if they're comments, you're all welcome to look there. So um, Layla was asking kind of regarding the additional cost of outreach to girls missing school during vaccine days or um, countries or others kind of putting, like having to put these unexpected costs into grant writing and proposals. And um, Layla, I think that question is probably most relevant for countries writing new vaccine introduction grants to Gabby. Um, and I haven't worked on a, a grant in a couple of years, but Sarah, are you seeing any of that? I think that there was been a bit of a lull um, during COVID for countries like not and not submitting their Gabby applications, but getting ready to do so. Yes. Are you hearing any of that? Yes, you're right. I think most of it is going now to the HHS, HSS grants that they're trying to write for catch up. That's, um, yeah, Leila, that's an interesting question. I, usually an introduction grant, if a country is reaching to Gavi to tap into those funds to support those activities, usually they're gonna do school-based, it's the most common, as well as outreach. Um, and so you see like kind of three to one school-based and, and maybe one outreach and outreach might be used for a subnational equity approach to reach rural populations or people who um, have to travel really far to go to school or whatever, whatever the reason is. 
Um, but then, but there also, there's always an acknowledgement that like there are girls who are not going to be in school on the day that you do, or even the week that you do your vaccine campaign, you have to integrate the school-based or the facility-based plus outreach. Um, so Thank sort you. of answers for you, Layla. <laughs> Um, and not necessarily just for regarding um, grants. I was just sort of thinking about the sort of real life mid project implications of discovering this kind of obstacle. And given the sort of experience um, that was probably gained through these projects, I was also wondering what do you were there specific methods now for finding for finding girls who aren't in school? Are there any methodologies that have come up or anything that works particularly well? Some good lessons learned from polio, although it's a different population. Sarah, I wanna come? Yeah, sorry, my internet is quite shaky right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think um, one of the things we're starting to think about is, for example, maybe leveraging some of the platforms we have outside of your traditional immunization platform. So, for example, with Japaiko, we have, for, I'm in Malawi right now, so I'll speak specifically on Malawi. We have this DREAMS project that targets girls 10 years of age to 19 for HIV screening and family planning and trying to, you know, see if these girls are starting to get sexually active. So in that conversation, that's an opportunity to also talk about HPV and address the need to get vaccinated. And this DREAMS project, they actually also go to schools. So that will also help sensitize teachers so that, that we're not facing that issue of, um, you know, children not showing up in school in the days that they're supposed to be getting vaccinated. But um, I do know right now, most countries are working on like post-COVID recovery strategies with specific budgets attached to them. So I'm hoping that, I think the issue is how we create that awareness that HPV should not be left out of that discussion. And that's what we're trying to think about when we're talking about bringing back the coverage rates to where they need to get to. I hope that answers the question. Thank you, yes. Go on to the next question, um, a comment um, on, it's being interesting to hear that the education sector, in the education sector, um, teachers were so opposed to HPV vaccine with the example that Sarah had given in Zambia. And the question is, what are strategies that um, you know, the vaccination um, teams or kind of EPI might use to reach out to the community to dispel fears or myths about vaccines. Um, just a brief comment on that. We're also, there's a there's a lit review that this project is working on. So we're screening abstracts at this point. It's a um, looking at a question of kind of what what is integrated, like the Dreams Project. Um, what what it, what kind of other adolescent health services are best practice, or kind of what do we know? What's the evidence around? integrating them with HPV vaccines. And um, in some of the abstracts I've been reading, this is not exclusively a problem in Zambia. Um, there's papers in Colombia and Vietnam that I was reading recently where teachers were really hesitant or had questions or were even opposed um, to vaccines. And it's usually a, um, kind of a community effort understanding, like taking the time to understand um, what the source of, of the concern and then um, really emphasizing positive messages. Sarah, anything else to add to that? No, you're absolutely right, Mary Carol. It's, it's um, 
I think most of the, the monitoring that's it's being noted is it's definitely the need to address these people who are seen as the authority of information in vaccination. So, um, you know, if I'm a mom and I'm trying to think about HPV, who do I talk to? I'm either going to talk to the, the lead that usually walks around with vaccines in the village or the school teacher. That's who I trust as my authority or even the community leaders or religious leaders. Um, they rely so much. Those are the people who are most influential. So it, once they start to hesitate, then it trickles down to now the parents. Uh, so it's making sure that they're all on board and that they all understand um, what the benefits are. Um, let's see another another question. There's a kind of a few around hesitancy. So um, Leila has one, I think, specific to polio. Vaccine-derived illness seems like it would fuel hesitancy. What efforts or funding are dedicated mm -hmm. and aimed at education and messaging for the public? Sarah, that one's explicitly for you, I think. For, for, for me. Yeah. Yes. I think with polio, it, the, the beauty of polio is oral drops. So even when there was hesitancy, because it's a long time when there was hesitancy, um, which did cause a lot of problems, which is the reason why we have the vaccine derived because coverage was so low because people wouldn't, if we had 80% coverage, we would never have had those vaccine derived polio cases. But because coverage was so low, so when a child is exposed to that vaccine uh, derived, the virus itself from the environment, then they get paralyzed. Um, so the beauty of that, that's the typical example of when you can convince ministers of health why this vaccine is good for you. You convince the ministries of the EPI managers, the teachers, the nurses. Once they're on board, you don't have too much work to do from there. Um, they go to their own communities and they convince people that you need to get vaccinated. Um, so the good thing is I think we're starting to see less cases now and more uptake of polio vaccine. Um, so there's a lot of hope by the end of this year, we won't be seeing some of those cases or at least we'll have a very reduced number of cases, if any at all. Thanks, Sarah. Let's maybe just go in order. Thanks for the questions. Di was asking, you know, what do you need to put in place to facilitate collaboration, perhaps, <laughs> between UN organizations, WHO, UNICEF, CDC, et cetera? Um, uh, it's easy to collaborate when somebody creates a funding mechanism to do so. Um, Sarah, <laughs> what have you found effective? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. People will listen to you when you come in with the money. But if you're trying to collaborate and you don't have money in the bag, no one's going to listen to you. So you got to take them out to fancy coffees and fancy lunches and say, we're here to talk about COVID today. And they'll listen. Um, yeah. <laughs> but of course, there's, you create, you foster that friendship. And then you say, how about we check in on a monthly basis about COVID? So even just having those communities of practice also helps. And I want one thing like TechNet um, helps a lot. I've seen a lot of very helpful exchanges there. Well, thank you very much. Can I ask a little bit more? Well, I understand the money is very important and communication is very important. But at the same time, I feel like there is some overlap of your work and responsibility in several organizations like Sometimes UNICEF and WHO have some overlap, especially for vaccination for children. That's what I saw, but what, what do you think about this option? Yeah, actually you're right. Um, there is overlap, but I actually like the way they work because clear, like it's very clear what, the, what UNICEF does in most times. It, it's usually vaccine management and social mobilization. 
So I know sometimes WHO will try to do some of that vaccine management, but only to a limited capacity because even the funding that they get is specific to certain activities. And usually the funder will say, but UNICEF is already doing this in this area. So why don't you take on surveillance? And then it's kind of just become untold, it's unspoken. WHO does surveillance and maybe paying the vaccinators and then UNICEF will do community mobilization and vaccine management. But I think as Mary Carroll said, the money also kind of does draw the line. And the good thing is the donors also have a certain expectation. When you're going into a certain area of work, uh, we have to be sure that there's no duplication of effort. So you have to prove that no one else is actually doing what you're trying to do. There's, um, with these coalition projects also, there is some built in, um, it's not duplication, but there's some, it's, it can be, you know, the Swiss cheese model of when, um, when you get like a, a quality event or like a, um, like a poor quality healthcare outcome, there's like a Swiss cheese model that like there, there were, you have to, like if there was a barrier that you had had like hit had some check or safeguard in place, like the outcome wouldn't have happened. Um, and if you have enough slices of the Swiss cheese that you'll kind of cover your risk, right? The holes are the risk. I think that having a couple of different, I think that a funder like Gates would see, um, having a couple of different projects kind of looking at, at different angles of the same issue helps really ensure that you get outcomes in the overall pictures. So WHO, can't do everything um and the kind of official government like the official agencies can't necessarily do like technical advocacy it's not considered appropriate for them to like you know have a certain message um because they're supposed to be the it, it's just that's just the politics of it and so there's there's a um a net benefit uh, to having multiple efforts kind of focused on a similar goal um but it is sort of like a like the the a bit of a family, like the roles are pretty defined just through history, like they were um, was mentioning. But with every new project, I think you kind of have to, to go through that um, defining of like, we're not stepping on your toes, we're helping. <laughs> um, it's, it's certainly kind of always a conversation. Um, well, thank you very much, Anna. Let's see, we have, um, um, I think still some time for questions. So there's another one from Nila. This is, I think, around general vaccine concern amongst populations, um, kind of like that being the heading. Is, is there any concern among populations of multiple vaccinations? Um, or is there any concern regarding multiple vaccinations? For example, when girls were encouraged not to come to school for HPV vaccine, is this also relative to other vaccines? And I think you're saying like, is, is hesitancy for one vaccine, does it translate to hesitancy for another vaccine or kind of concerns similar? What do you think, Sarah? Uh, yes, yeah, no, I, I uh, just got a small request here. Yes, uh, definitely, because for example, I think the, the re reduced uptake of HPV, for example, in schools is associated a lot with when, when people are trying to go back to do post-COVID, trying to catch up with girls, you know, there was all this hesitancy around COVID vaccines, which people are still struggling with right now. Um, when you try to go into that community now with HPV vaccine and say we're coming to vaccinate girls because this is good for you to prevent cervical cancer, they're thinking you're doing some Pfizer trials. Um, so, you know, and, and then you're trying to repackage it in a different way. So 
something I'm realizing is, you know, so most countries have country governments, but I think something that needs to be looked at much more closely is the traditional constituencies in countries, because those are the people, for example, who will tell people, uh, don't vote for this person if you're in my constituency, you will vote for this person. So the same goes with vaccine. If that same person is telling you who to vote for and you vote for them, it's the same person who's going to tell people to take the vaccine or not take the vaccine. And we found it's the same person who will say, these guys are trying to do vaccine trials with us. The best example was the Catholic church in Kenya when they try to say, oh, they're trying to give us polio vaccines to depopulate us. It was for, they said it was to, um, it was messing up with the fertility among women in Kenya. So the, what happened there is we now had to work with the Catholic church itself and invite them to the lab, to the Kenya lab to show them, look, this is all there is in the vaccine. None of it shows that there's any issues with fertility. And the same thing now has happened with COVID. A lot of the ladies I see that have not taken COVID vaccine are also concerned with fertility issues. They're trying to go have babies and there's all this talk about it messes up with the fertility. So it's the same now that feeds into the HPV issue in, in, in a, lot, a lot of the health workers thinking, okay, this is still another depopulation issue coming up. So there's a lot of work to be done on hesitancy. Um, but I think the target should always be the non-traditional immunization people that we haven't been really looking at, the teachers. And uh, of course, pediatric associations we found to be very effective. So if you can convince one person from the pediatric association to be a champion or for HPV, if you can work with the obstetrics and gynecology associations or societies, those voices are very critical. And of course, people like midwives in communities, because sometimes you'll find midwives are not just doing birthing, but they're also delivering vaccines in communities. So just thinking outside the box and how to, re to reduce hesitancy. Okay. I think that's the end of our questions. I know you guys might have something at one o'clock and happy to give you a, a moment between, um, but thank you all for participating. Layla, back over to you to, to close us out, I think. Thank you both so much for joining us today and for educating us about uh, all of these exp experiences with vaccination efforts. Um, I think we all learned a lot. Uh, I know that we'll have the recording uh, at least of audio, if not of um, some edited uh, slide uh, recording uh, available. Um, and thank you again so much for all of you for being here and for both of you, uh, Mary Carol and for Sarah for joining us. Thanks. Reach out if you'd yeah. like. Leila knows how to reach us. And I think, you know, there's always some room for a really interested um, student to plug into some of these projects. Uh, so Wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, everybody. Happy Public Health Week. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. <laughs>